Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're in the teeth of our country's birthday celebration. One way to celebrate statehood and sovereignty and appreciate it better is to spend some time with people who don't have sovereignty or statehood like they would like it. And that's what Joshua Keating did in his book, Invisible Countries, Journeys to the Edge of Nationhood. He visited Somaliland, Abkhazia, Kurdistan, a Mohawk reservation, the Kiribati, the Pacific Island Nation, and other places. Joshua Keating writes for Slate these days, and it's good to talk with you. How are you, Joshua? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You know, I this is a long-held project of you in yours, Invisible Countries. You really wanted to muck around and find out about people with different um, sovereignty challenges. What, what, what is appealing to this about you? Yeah, well, I write about international politics uh, for my day job. And um, in doing that, I usually kind of take countries, uh, these 193 or 194, uh, depending on your definition, uh, political entities in the world today as kind of the assumed base unit for international politics. And I guess I wanted to interrogate that a little bit and uh, ask some questions about what is a country and who gets to decide what's a country and what isn't. And in order to do that, I wanted to travel to a couple of places, as you mentioned, uh, where the definition's a little ambiguous, where these are places where either uh, they meet our general criteria for statehood but aren't recognized, or uh, you know, there are other places in the world that are the other way around. The general criteria for statehood, um, you describe how it came into being, and it's a relatively recent development. And the definition is pretty random. It, what, what, how did we get to this place? Yeah, well, there's a legal definition that's usually uh, referred to um, uh, in something called the Montevideo Convention. There was a treaty uh, between the U.S. and some Latin American countries in the 1930s that just happened to include this definition. Uh, and it says a country has to have a – to be recognized as an independent state, it has to have a government, uh, a defined territory – Uh, citizens and the capacity to enter into relations with other countries. Uh, Now, if you look around the world, there there are a number of places that uh, have seats at the United Nations and flags and all that and aren't recognized uh, uh, and but but don't meet those criteria and those we generally refer to as failed states. Uh, and then there are places like Somaliland, for instance, which I visited, which definitely meet all those criteria, but no other country in the world recognizes it. Well, if we have this kind of legal definition, but in practice, we don't extend it to practice, um, we, mm. we kind of have a flexible notion of sovereignty that we just aren't uh, uh, digesting. We're, we're, um, it's based on other things, on power politics, on, on all the um, rules and dictates of, of big powers. Yeah, and one one scholar wrote a book about sovereignty, and which is called "Organized Hypocrisy," which is a kind of a good way of putting <laughs> it. Um, and it. And it often does come down to to power politics and and what other countries will recognize. I mean, I I, I went to Abkhazia, which is a breakaway region of Georgia. It's recognized by Russia and a handful of other. Uh, countries. And, you know, there, anytime you get into a conversation in Abkhazia, you end up talking about Kosovo, uh, because they see 
that country in the Balkans, which is recognized by the U.S. but not Russia. And, you know, they see it as this massive uh, example of hypocrisy, why the West will recognize Kosovo's sovereignty but not theirs. Um, uh, I, I was actually in Abkhazia. It, the World Cup's going on right now, but I was there for uh, an event called the World Football Cup, which is a soccer tournament for countries that are unrecognized, that they can't get uh, membership in FIFA. So um, that was a great opportunity to meet people from from a lot of these places. All right. That's, uh, it, that is a funny thing, the World Football Cup. Oh, who was there? Who was playing? Yeah, so it was in Abkhazia, as I mentioned, uh, and and the home team actually won the tournament. Um, and I spent a lot of my time with the team from Somaliland, uh, who I wrote a feature about uh, back in 2016. But there are also teams from northern Cyprus, uh, and uh, which is the Turkish recognized enclave. Uh, there was a Kurdish team. Uh, there were some that were sort of a little more obscure. There was. Padania, which is another term for northern Italy. There was Raetia, which is the Romanche-speaking uh, area of Switzerland. There's a team for the uh, uh, Korean minority of Japan. So, you know... Punjab was in the finals. <laughs> the Punjab, yeah, the, which was a kind of passion project of a, uh, um, a British uh, Sikh accountant who um, wanted to have a team that represented not just the historic region of Punjab, but all Punjabi people worldwide. And so it was kind of nationalist project on his part. So these were all places that, uh, you know, and and I should mention FIFA. There, there are some members of uh, the main world soccer body that, that aren't UN member states and uh, are kind of have ambiguous sovereignty. But the, these were places that can't even get membership in FIFA. Well, that must have been a really interesting place to take the temperature of um, the quest for sovereignty, all these places that want something different, it would give you a palpable sense that there is a lot of places around the planet that want to do something different. Yeah, and I should note, I mean, the, a lot of the book focuses on unrecognized countries and places that would ideally like to have a seat at the UN and and full diplomatic recognition and all that. Uh, but not everywhere I traveled was like that. I mean, I, I, I spent some time in Akwesasne, which is a uh, Mohawk community, which actually straddles the U.S.-Canada border. So half the town, base, it's basically a town, and half of it is in the U.S. and half of it is in Canada. And they would like to be recognized as not part of either of those countries. They uh, They just want to be a sort of cohesive, uh, independent political ed- entity, even if that's something less than what we normally consider a state. Uh, they There it's complicated by the fact that um, the U.S. and Canada both have sort of different legal regimes under which they treat um, – you know, first pe- first people or, or Native American nations. And so there's actually two different governments, uh, one recognized by the U.S. and one by Canada. So uh, they've kind of had this division imposed on them. But, you know, I've talked to a few Mohawk scholars for this book, and then there's also a kind of movement that maybe sort of full sovereignty is not something that they should be striving for because it sort of implies an acceptance of a uh, state system uh, imposed by the countries around them and that maybe they should be looking for more kind of cultural sovereignty. Um, and so that, uh, you know, so so that's an example of a place where, you know, it's it's not trying to be a country 
in you know the way that the U.S. or Canada or Sweden or Mexico or countries, but um, trying to assert political sovereignty in a different way. And the Aquasassini example is one where there are just a lot of the practical um, deficiencies or problems that people run into in when their their territory is in two countries or you know when people don't have passports and all these things uh, happen throughout the book but Aquasassini's got a bunch of them they have a hard time there's people who keep cars in both countries and things like that yeah you you're kind of in this strange twilight realm there where the um the border is both a kind of uh a constant presence in people's lives but also doesn't exist when you're actually in the town there are no in parts of it, there are no markers for when you're in the U.S. or when you're in Canada. Someone pointed out to me when I was there that the only way you can tell if you're in the U.S. or in Canada is what country the fire hydrants are. Uh, there, I believe, <laughs> if I remember correctly, it's red in the U.S. and yellow in Canada. But on the other hand, you know, uh, on either side of this town, there are border checkpoints. And, you know, technically to get from one part of Canada to another, you have to cross through the U.S. And legally, you're supposed to check in at the border crossing, uh, which means that, you know, often people who, even if you don't leave, you know, this this fairly small town, you could be crossing an international border several times a day, as I, as I was when I was there. Um, and it's it's this sort of constant uh, presence in your life. And, and I should say, you know, I, I traveled to um, – a few, you know, to Iraq and Somalia for this book and uh, some places that are um, uh, kind of dicey from the point of view of uh, uh, U.S. immigration law. But the the only time that I really had trouble at a border crossing was going back and forth uh, in Aquasasne between my, my hotel in, uh, in Ontario and the U.S. And uh, what kind of trouble was that? Um, just sort of questioning about what my project was, and you know, my my car was searched a few times. Uh, they were weren't somewhat suspicious of the fact that I was a journalist. They kept asking if I was recording uh, the interaction. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I I went to some sort of out of the way places, some places that don't have great relations with the U.S. But I, I do think the only time I felt like I was under some suspicion was there. And and I should say that the, the reason for that is that Aquasasne is also kind of famously a place where a lot of smuggling happens because the border is kind of ambiguous. And um, until recently, it was a place where, where a lot of refugees crossed. So uh, it's not entirely unexpected that uh, border security is uh, a little tighter and a little more suspicious there than it might be in other spots along the border. I'm talking with Joshua Keating about his book, Invisible Countries, Journeys to the Edge of Nationhood. And uh, is it the part of the in interest in your book would be about this heightened sense of nationalism that many countries in the U.S. and Europe and are, are feeling right now. They want to make their borders stronger. The Aquasassini thing is a is a reflection of that. Uh, uh, and you're fraternizing with all these people who want to have a more flexible idea about what sovereignty and nation state is. Uh, these things are happening simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, well, a big theme of the book is that it's become hard to change borders or to create new countries. And, um, you know, it, in the 20th century, there was the wave of decolonization that hit uh, Asia and Africa. There were uh, the number of independent countries in the world, you know, more or less quadrupled, whereas, you know, it's only been three new 
newly independent UN member states in the 21st century. So the, the process of country creation has really slowed down. And I think that's continued to be the case. I mean, I, I've been writing, working on the book for a few years now, but I, I still feel good about that part of the thesis. I think what's changed since I started uh, working on the book is I, I had a sense when I was starting out that maybe it didn't matter so much because borders uh, were becoming less important that, you know, with globalization and um, sort of increase in people living outside their borders uh, that uh, it wouldn't really matter so much. I mean, if you um, uh, but, you know, that has obviously changed with we now have border controls being reimposed in much of Europe, uh, the sort of rise of nationalist movements there that want uh, a, a a Europe of nations, as Marine Le Pen put it, uh, 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 Brexit's going to lead to, well, we're not quite sure what that will lead to uh, in terms of the um, Northern Irish uh, I Republic of Ireland border. Uh, and obviously in the U.S., we have a, a president who says, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. And I think what he, I'm, you know, that's a truism in some sense. Of, of, of course, that's true. But uh, clearly what he means by that is, um, a sort of strictly enforced, uh, militarized, bureaucratic border where who comes in and who leaves is sort of uh, closely controlled and a country becomes a kind of hermetically sealed box where um, uh, movement has to be um, in and out, has to be closely supervised. And that's not uh, – that's a sort of definition of a country that not only – would exclude a lot of countries that exist today that have a kind of looser controls on their border, but is fairly recent. I mean, the uh, you know uh, undocumented entry to the U.S. was only really criminalized in the 1920s, and uh, in Europe, uh, a lot of the border controls that were um, sort of done away with under the European Union only came into existence around World War One. So, um, you know, this is a kind of modern uh, uh, idea of nationhood that. Um, we're seeing promoted by a lot of these movements that claim to be, um, you know, uh, reimagining or, or bringing back kind of uh, ancient ideas of, of what a nation is. It's uh, interesting to think about the idea that no matter how hard the world tries to create states all over the place and make everybody a citizen of somewhere, it still fails. And there are little patches where there is no state or there is a contested state like Aquasassini. Um, you visit several of those in the in the book, um, Teeny Weeny One in Croatia. Um, there's, <laughs> there, uh, there's also people who, who do not have citizenship in, in places. Um, obviously, there's some big groups of those kind of people. Palestinians might count as that. Um, there's mm -hmm. people who were you – you talk about a man who came here during the era of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union dissolved and those people were rendered stateless. They did not have citizenship in the new Russia or anything or wherever they were from. Uh, there, there were bunches of those. Yeah, and I, I think we take we take it for granted in our world today that everyone has to have citizenship. I mean, the philosopher Ernest Gellner has this line about how uh, a person has to have a nationality the same way they have uh, ears and a nose. And, um, and not only that, but we live in a world where a person's human rights and civil rights are tied closely to the country they're a citizen of. Uh, that's the entity that that grants you those rights. And, you know, from 
the time of Nazi Germany up till the treatment of the Rohingya in Myanmar today. I mean, every time there's a kind of prelude to um, ethnic cleansing of a group of, or of one group or another, the first thing that happens is they are denied uh, right to citizenship in a country they live and they're considered um, foreigners. I mean, I, I, th- I talk a lot of, in the book about uh, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points uh, at the end of World War I. The U.S. president uh, outlined this sort of vision to Congress that was then, um, you know, shared all over the world and and actually created a great deal of excitement, you know, probably more than he intended uh, uh, throughout much of the colonial world as well. And it was this idea that the age of empires was coming to an end and from now on uh, nations would be based on sort of reapportionment of borders uh, so that they correspond with the peoples on the ground. Uh, you know, the problem, which very quickly became evident, was that one, it's hard to, nobody really knows what a people is. Um, and two, no matter where you draw those lines, they're going to be uh, individuals who find themselves on the wrong side of them. Uh, people don't tend to cluster in neat little groups that uh, you can just separate by borders and everyone will get along. And so, you know, th- that's been a problem throughout the 20th century. And, and it's why today, uh, when I hear, you know, people say that, oh, we, we, if we just redrew uh, the borders of Iraq and split it into three different countries, or, or why don't we just partition Syria or Yemen, and it would uh, uh, make things easier. I mean, I, I think it would solve some problems. But uh, there aren't that many examples of peaceful partitions in history. There aren't that many Czechoslovakias, the kind of Yugoslavia or partition of India um, precedent where a partition is a prelude to more violence and territorial disputes and ethnic cleansing. Uh, those are a lot more common. So should we be afraid of changing borders? The world is right to be... Um, status quo oriented. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I call it cartographical stasis, this kind of period we're in where it's become very hard to shift national borders and uh, uh, or hard to create new countries. Uh, and I, I would say on the whole, it's been good for global stability. I mean, interstate wars, wars between independent countries are pretty rare today. Um, obviously, there's no lack of conflict in the world, but we don't see the same kind of uh, ter- territorial disputes between countries that we used to, and and that's a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, as I mentioned before, it leaves out a lot of people who find themselves within states uh, where they're marginalized or their rights aren't recognized. And uh, I guess one thing I – rather than just sort of redrawing borders, I mean one thing – kind of conversation I would like this book to be a part of or to encourage is to sort of think a little more creatively and flexibly about what a nation is. I mean, some of the people I talked to in Kurdistan were talking about kind of confederation ideas where the Kurdish regions in Iraq and Syria and Turkey and Iran would, uh, you know, rather than sort of splitting off from those countries would remain part of them while also sort of building cultural ties with each other and sort of creating a kind of uh, political nation that's uh, maybe outside the states they're a part of. And I think the international system we have right now doesn't really kind of make room for alternative arrangements like that. There's a country as a country and it's um, this sort of one-size-fits-all 
definition that has a that that gets you that seat at the end and UN and that applies whether you're China or Vanuatu it's it, it's all kind of um, uh, one sort of model of nation nationhood we have and so uh, I guess what I'm sort of thinking about is because of both the cultural and ecological changes that are are coming that um, it, it might be time to entertain some uh, alternative models and it's uh, and I'm not really sure what those are going to be. Definitely food for thought as we celebrate this country's birthday uh, here tomorrow. Thanks for joining us, Joshua Keating. Invisible Countries, Journeys to the Edge of Nationhood is his book. Great to talk with you. Thanks, Jerome. Pleasure to be here. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Fairtrade Bethlehem was the first guaranteed member of the World Fair Trade Organization in the Middle East. The founder of Fairtrade Bethlehem is with me, Suzanne Sahori, and it's great to meet you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Also here is Reverend Martha Gillette. She's an Episcopalian priest from the Church of the Holy Apostles in Wakanda and brought, um, brought Suzanne to our attention. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it is my pleasure and delight to be here, especially with Suzanne. Now, explain how you know Suzanne and, and how you became familiar with the work of Fairtrade Bethlehem. I work with a small organization called Sister Farm Market, and one of the things that we do is take small groups of women periodically to Palestine to do a variety of things, one of which is meet with women entrepreneurs and farmers and activists who are interested in um, promoting fair trade. And so one does not go to Palestine to do anything fair trade related without engaging with Suzanne. And uh, Suzanne, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the fair trade business there in uh, the Bethlehem area. um, You've been at it like 10 years or so. Yes. Um, uh, Bethlehem Fairtrade Artisans was established in 2009, um, and I am uh, born in the city of Beit Saha, which is five minutes away from Bethlehem, and we are living um, a very unique, special uh, political situation. You're very close to the Harhoma settlement? We there? are very, very close. We are actually uh, right opposite of the Harhoma settlement, and so we have the idea was of fair trade. How can we make a change under such political situation? It is through fair trade. It's through finding opportunities to the producers um, all over Palestine. Explain the groups you work with because Mm -hmm. you are trying to help the most vulnerable producers is in your mission statement. Who are they? Now, um, in the Bethlehem district where my city is, it's uh, about 60% of the population depend on tourism. The number one producers, they are all family workshops. Of course, the olive wood products is like a tradition. Uh, Visitors come to visit the birthplace of Jesus, the Nativity Church, and buy a gift. Um, So always, it's like without those small producers, nobody could buy a gift. They are the ones who are making these beautiful products. 
Um, so we support 40 family-owned workshops. And I mean, it's, it's not a big workshop. It's like the mother, the father, the grandfather who started the ancestors. And now the son is taking over. So it's a tradition where they make, we started with religious figures. And now, of course, we make secular also for others to buy. But our main products are religious because it is, it is the tradition that was in Bethlehem for hundreds of years. We work also with um, four handicapped groups. The handicapped centers, each one of them is unique in its own way because they produce uh, recycled cart, recycled felt wool uh, products. And again, the brand is the Holy Land and the Nativity. Uh, Explain a little about your trip there, uh, Reverend Martha Gillette. Um, What was it like? What what did you see there? I think most people think they're going to go to Bethlehem someday in their life, but maybe they don't. Right. One of the things that we find with these trips that we take is that invariably, no matter how well-educated, well-traveled, well-informed one is, one goes and actually sees the reality on the ground, meets the women, has an opportunity to listen to the stories. Um, It is invariably transformative. And it was definitely the same thing for me. You know, I fancy myself to be somebody who has been around and knows a little bit about kind of everything. And oh my gosh, um, I was sadly mistaken. And I, you know, definitely came back with a new perspective, with kind of a new passion, um, with a new understanding and with a whole bunch of new friends. Now you've you're, you've kind of networked with a bunch of people to make more stuff happen for women now in this region. We like to think so. Um, I definitely work with Suzanne. I, I do work with a couple of other um, producers and suppliers. Um, one out of Jerusalem, one out of actually Gaza City, and um, and it is just wonderful to be able to uh, to work with them. But. From my perspective, the very best thing is to be able to travel with other women and to be able to meet not only people like Suzanne, but the people that she supports, the people for whom she advocates, the people that um, that are both making a difference and are benefiting from the difference that she and others like her make. When's your next trip? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because we actually had to cancel our 2018 trip for lack of participation. So I will certainly let you know when our next trip (laughs) is, um, but it should be sometime in 2019. We, We do take just women. Um, and we do that because it affords us access to people in places we would not otherwise have access to. Now, were you going under the auspices of Sister Farm Market? Is that yes. your, the organization mm-hmm. that is Yes, uh, and we call them happen? Women's Witness Trips because it's sort of a double entatra where we go and we witness. And then the expectation is that we will come back and witness in our own communities to what we have seen and what we have learned. Uh, Tell me more about how fair trade has changed the people and the producers in the community, Suzanne. What effect have you had over the last 10 years? Um, We have created opportunities, export opportunities all over the world. I remember in 2009, maybe 2011, when we started really to export all over the world, it was like new opportunities have been opened. When a producer used to sell a year, $1,000, and now he's selling like twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars. That's good. That means he's getting opportunities. Um, there are women who are so creative, but they need opportunity to develop, to change, and maybe to create 
okay, you are talented, but can we do something different so I can also enter you into the market where your product can sell? Now, um, clients and friends and partners and solidarity friends who really like Sister Farm, they started to work with us and they import the products. So we are at a stage where we are saying that we need to take care of the culture through the fair trade. And I'm not saying give me money. Buy something beautiful that is handmade, and it tells the story who makes this product. So it is selling the handicraft, the tradition, and keeping the tradition alive, and also telling the plight of the Palestinians. What's your biggest challenge? What's the hardest thing about this? Oh, the biggest challenge sometimes it is um, finding a good market. Uh, because the fair trade tends to be a bit expensive because the producer is like is the only opportunity where he gets a fair price for his products is through fair trade. Um, challenge is also sometimes the export out of Palestine because we are living in the West Bank and uh, some of the challenges we face is we don't have the right of movement where I can just put the order on a truck and deliver it to Tel Aviv or deliver it to Ashdod. I have to go through such a long process in order to be able to export. So that's a big challenge. Bethlehem is an area C, which is... It's an area A, A which is a Palestinian-controlled area. So that means the goods have to go to Area C, which is Israel. And instead of taking maybe before before 2002, um, I used to drive maybe my own car and take the goods to Tel Aviv Airport and bring it. After 2002, after the separation wall was built, that means I need to go to a nearby checkpoint, which is called Turkumia, and have a Palestinian truck upload into the Israeli truck and then go to Tel Aviv. And of course, I've been now touring the U.S., and many of my customers have said, your shipping cost is very high. So that's a big challenge, how we can really overcome. It is expensive because of the situation that we export and the routes we take. Suzanne Sahori is the founder of Fair Trade Bethlehem. You can look at their website at BethlehemFairTrade.org. Reverend Martha Gillette is an Episcopalian priest from the Church of the Holy Apostle in Wakanda, and you can see some of her work with uh, Sister Farm Market on their website, SisterFarmMarket.org. And you can meet uh, both of them today at the Greenheart Shop. It's from 3 to 5 at 714 North Wells. The Greenheart Shop is the... uh, uh, Greenheart Shop is the fair trade outlet here in the uh, Chicago area. And what, what's going on here? Uh, 1714 North Wells. And uh, check it out. It's tonight, today from 3 to 5, wine and olive oil tasting. And it's great to meet you, Suzanne Sahori and Martha Gillette. Great to meet you, too. Thank, Thank you, you for, for so this much. great opportunity. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a new play that caught our attention for a couple reasons. Not one, but two is running through July 21st. 
And the production is in Hawaiian Pidgin, a language you may not know exists. And it's also a production of a theater company, Nothing Without a Company, that's not your typical theater company. We're going to hear an excerpt from Not One But Two in a second. But first, let's talk with the playwright, Hannah E.E. Epstein. She is co-artistic director of Nothing Without a Company. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. First of all, tell us about the company. And it's got a very interesting mission statement and idea and way forward. Yes. So we've been around for over 10 years now. We do site-specific and immersive theater. So theater where the audience can be a part of the production itself and also theater that takes place in the location that the play was written. Give us an example of what you've done in the past. In the past, we've done a show called Punk Punk that took place in a garage, and we put it in a garage in Uptown. So the audience (laughs) met us at a bar, and we walked them down an alley into a three-car garage. Nice. Yeah. Uh, For this one, not one, but two, where are you going? So we are going from an indoor space, which would be Uncle Makana's kind of backyard area where the immersive show happens, and you meet the actors in their characters, and then we take the audience outside onto the lawn with the lake as the backdrop and for the play proper. And in this case, the lake as a backdrop is appropriate. The play is about Hawaii. Yes, yes. So it it serves as the ocean. We're only missing the smells. And, and it's the middle of summer. This would be inappropriate in the middle of our winter. Yes, very true. And the play is in Hawaiian pidgin. And this is something you know how to speak. Can you you tell people who have no idea that this exists, what is it? So Hawaiian Pidgin English was born out of the plantation era in Hawaii, and they brought together all different types of people who didn't speak the same language. So the language itself was born through needing to communicate with each other. So it's a mixture of a bunch of Asian language, Cantonese, Mandarin, um, Filipino, Hawaiian, English, and many more. (laughs) So that makes for some interesting words, I bet, an interesting mishmash of words. Can people understand it if they go to the play? Can they basically follow along? It's rooted in English, so they can definitely follow along. We try to say it's almost like Shakespeare. There's a rhythm to it, and once you've heard it for maybe about five minutes, you'll be able to pick it up. All right. But it is considered an official language of Hawaii these days. Yes, yes. The U.S. Census um, put it in their little paperwork that you fill out every year. And why did you want to do the play in Hawaiian Pidgin? I believe the people from Hawaii, that's what they speak. Um, That's what we grew up speaking. That's what I grew up speaking. And we learn proper English as we go through the educational systems. And so I really do feel that it is the most spoken language in Hawaii. We're talking about the play Not One But Two with the playwright Hannah E.E. Epstein, and she's co-artistic director of Nothing Without a Company. It's running through July 21st at the Burger Park Cultural Center Coach House. Now, the play is about uh, the meth community and and a kind of a meth situation, and it comes out of your personal experiences. Uh, Batu is meth for people who don't speak Hawaiian pidgin. Yes. So Batu is the Filipino word for methamphetamine that has been adopted by Hawaiian Pidgin English, and it's the most used word when we talk about the drug. And not one Batu, I originally heard it as a joke from a third grader. Someone asked him if he wanted to smoke, and he said, not one Batu. And it is a terrible feeling 
to have heard that from someone so young, but it affects so many generations, meth itself. And this play focuses on a generational meth using family. And it comes out of your experiences uh, using meth yes. in Hawaii? Yes. I was an addict um, of meth and other drugs for, I want to say, about five or six years. And it was through stories I experienced myself or my friends or family had experienced that I came up with a lot of these characters. I think when people think about the meth outbreak, it's typically, you know, somewhere in Pennsylvania or something, and it's not Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. It's somewhere in Idaho. How bad was it in Hawaii? It is continually a terrible and most used drug out there. What's so bad about it is through colonization, the Hawaiian people themselves got displaced. There's a lot of poverty. And in any community that has poverty and low education systems and all of these things, we find that drugs take over these communities. You mentioned like middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, that again is probably a place where there's a lot of poverty and homelessness. Explain what happens in the family in that one, but two, what goes on? It's a mother-daughter relationship and the mom is throughout the play trying to tell her daughter something and the daughter is not ready to hear it and the mom's not ready to say it. We're going to hear a scene from the play, and is that a good enough work up to this scene, or does it need more? They're um, also visited by friends. Because Honey Girl is a drug dealer, they are visited by her clients and customers. So the main character is a drug dealer. Yes, and a recovering meth addict herself. Okay. And her mother is? And her mother is a current meth addict. So we've got several people from the play here. Marie Treadway is here. She plays the role of Honey Girl, and Gloria Alvarez and uh, Buffy Koala Puna Wong is with us. I, I messed it up badly, didn't I? Koala Puna, Puna Wong. Wong. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. No problem. And we're going to hear a bit of the play, um, not one but two, and let's hear it. Wow, I never seen you long time. Where you working, Sherry? BYU, studying psychology. I have about a year left. No way, over there in Kauku. Yup, I'm taking the sociology class, and we're focusing on subcultures. What is that? It's a group within a group. Like, Hawaiian is a culture, right? Yup. So, think even smaller. Meth. The meth culture in Hawaii is within the Hawaiian culture now. So, Hawaii meth is one subculture. It sure as heck can be. That's what I'm doing my paper on. The Hawaiian meth. Like, did you know that meth was brought to Hawaii by the Chinese? Yeah, we all know that. But the mainland stay perfecting them now. Okay, smarty pants. But what you don't know is that it was brought here to test only. And the 5 oh, You guys! <laughs> Anyways. The 5 was staying out of it, saying it was no big deal because they wanted to focus on battling weed. No way. Whenever you wouldn't hear somebody, you wouldn't kill when they was on weed. Never. But if it was here for testing... By the time they... And I say they as the DEA, the government, the 5 they, by the time they realized how bad ISO was here, it was too late. And so many people was hooked, they couldn't get rid of it. And by it, I mean meth. It started seeping into almost every subculture in Hawaii. The poor have to work two, three, four jobs meth. The extreme sports become more extreme like surfing or jumping waterfalls. Meth. Yeah. The hippies gotta keep planting those crops. Meth. Meth. 
The rich are bored. Meth. Meth. Hey, some people gotta make a living so they sell it. For sure. It's been seeping into almost everything, so we're at the point now where it's so integrated, we can't get rid of it. Like a cockroach infestation. Yeah, f***ing ice. they taking Hawaii over like the Mormons did. <laughs> <laughs> Dork. Anyway, take me for example. I'm a full-time student working a full-time job and taking care of my little brother. I'm what you call a functioning addict. Oh. Meaning when things get piled up, I smoke batu so I can stay up longer and use more hours in a day. I don't smoke every day, but sometimes, like this week, I'll go on benders. Well, I just stay one addict then, because all I do is work one job and smoke ice every day. That's a bit of Not One But Two. It is playing at the Burger Park Cultural Center Coach House. We're talking with the playwright Hannah E.E. E. Epstein. So you've given us some examples here of characters and people who are are viewing their, their use of meth differently and kind of thinking about it and thinking about its place in the subculture. And these are kind of like examples of people you knew. Yes. Oh, definitely. There's usually a very stereotypical look at what a meth addict should look like, which is in media, I see them portrayed as very thin, no teeth, got sores all over their faces. But meth addicts don't always look as bad as we view them in media. And so I'm trying to show this other side of anyone that you know could be a meth addict. You just might not know it. One of the interesting things about your production is you seem to have come to it, and why it's here is a bit about the Aloha Center of Chicago. Tell us a bit about them, how you came to know them, and how the production came here. Sure. When we were thinking about bringing the production here, I was introduced to Lani Aloha at the Aloha Center Chicago. And she took me in with open arms. And I started actually taking hula classes with them and becoming part of the family of the Aloha Center. And as we grew this play, we added in this first act for people who have never been to Hawaii, who don't know what it's like there, to introduce them to the more positive side of the culture before introducing them to the meth part of the culture. As a tourist, I believe people go there and see Waikiki and see all of the pretty things and don't necessarily look around them to see the homelessness, poverty, and drug addicts. And did the play play in Hawaii? Yes, a world premiere in Hawaii at Kumukuhua Theater in 2016 and won six Po'okela Awards, which are kind of like the Jeffs or the Tonys, but for Hawaii, which was really cool. <laughs> How many people in Hawaii do Pigeon Hawaiian? Oh, gosh. And in, theater, in theater? or In theater. Not very many. Um, I believe Kumukuhua Theater is the main theater for a lot of um, Hawaiian stories and Polynesian stories. And Hawaiian Pigeon in Chicago theater ever? I've never heard of it. So we're saying this is the first production of a Hawaiian Pigeon play. Nice. Uh, let me talk with a few of the people uh, we just heard from in the, in the excerpt. And did anyone here, Maria, Gloria, Buffy, did you speak Hawaiian Pigeon before this? Um, I'm from Hawaii. Yep. And they actually flew me out here. Uh, to do the show because I originated the role back home ah. uh, two years ago. Hawaiian Pigeon has been a part of my life sure. since I was born. So I'm used to hearing it and used to speaking it. But I used to get scoldings from my mother that we weren't allowed to speak Pigeon, at least not until I was older. 
Um, I grew up on the island of Guam, which I always tell people is a mini Hawaii, but it is very different. There is some slang, but me being Filipino-American, I recognized some Filipino-Hawaiian pidgin. It was easier to pick up, but there was still a lot that I had to learn. So really had to lean on Hana and Buffy and um, a couple other people who are Native Hawaiians to really help us with meanings and, and words. But Hawaiian pidgin is a beautiful language in the fact that it is kind of an amalgamation of all of these different languages. And uh, I think that it's so beautiful. <laughs> I really love it. Well, and you, and you have the lead. You are honey girl in the play. Yes. And, and so as yes. you, you had to learn probably the most of it. I did. <laughs> I did. It, like I said, it was really hard. And, and I was like, if there's ever something that I pronounce wrong, please stop me right away. Tell me so I can hammer it in my head as soon as possible. <laughs> I'm the same way with things on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Gloria Alvarez, I'm guessing from your name, you did not know the Hawaiian pigeon before this. I did not. I grew up in Chicago, so the first time I heard this was when we were rehearsing for the play and I was reading the script. Um, it's definitely different, and it's actually a really cool language to learn. Um, my character doesn't really speak pigeon, so I didn't have a lot to learn, but I... I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I bet you can understand oh, the rest yeah, of it completely yeah. now. It's not I a... love listening to them. How do you like playing outdoors? I imagine that is not something every actor gets to do, to play outside by the ocean or the yeah, lake in this Yeah, case. definitely. This is my first show outdoors, uh, surprisingly, <laughs> since I'm from Hawaii. <laughs> but it's definitely a new experience, and it kind of puts you in the right mindset. This is the kind of show that requires you to actually use your imagination and belief that you are in Hawaii. You don't have the smells of the ocean or you don't hear the common birds that we have around, but it definitely puts you in the mindset. But you've got to project. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you've really got to be... Project, yeah. and especially because there is no walls that can bounce, bounce sound off. off. Yeah. You really have to project. And there's a bunch of other things, too, that you don't... Uh, have to deal with when you're inside, you know, especially because we are in a park. So there's, there are people walking by, there's the lake, there is the roads uh, <laughs> of people driving. Um, but I think it really adds to helping an audience immerse themselves into this environment. I mean, even last night during opening, there were people who weren't paid theater ticket goers to watch the show, but they were sitting on park benches behind us engaged in the show and sometimes audibly, oh. which as an actor was really interesting <laughs> to have to react or not react. <laughs> yeah, it was really nice too last night during opening night. It was just really amazing. Like the full moon was out and it just gave a really nice backdrop to everything too. Yeah, like she was, uh, Marie was saying, like you have like all the background noise too and like you hear kids crying or like dogs too which adds like a whole other element to it we even had, a, we even had uh, apparently during one of our scenes just beside of us there was somebody proposing there was a proposal happening wow. on this side <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize that until some friends pointed it out afterwards saying did you realize there was some guy you know on his knee proposing <laughs> and the mom is taking pictures that's some pretty heavy drama competition yeah <laughs> <laughs> definitely well thanks for joining us uh, Buffy Kaluea Puna. I messed it up again. Kahale Puna. Kahale Puna. Yes. Long. And she plays the role of Ma in Not One But Two. Gloria Alvarez plays the role of Sherry in Not One But Two. And Marie Treadway is Honey Girl, the lead in Not One But Two. Thank you for joining us and thank you for coming in and doing a bit of the play. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
And uh, thanks a lot to Hannah E.E. Epstein, the Chicago playwright who created this. What is the future for this play? You seem to have organically built it up for this production in a way that's uh, different from the one in Hawaii that may be different from the next one. Yeah, hopefully I will get people interested in doing it all over America, all over the world, and we can see what we can build for a first act for those people or not at all. For yeah. people who are interested in tickets, what do they do? If you're interested in tickets, visit nothingwithoutacompany.org. Thanks a lot, and great hearing about Not One But Two. is the 4th of July. I hope you have a great one and enjoy yourself. I'm going to be taking the day off, as is the rest of the Worldview crew, and at this time tomorrow, you are going to hear really good music, I think. It's uh, August Green, the supergroup that Common formed with Robert Glasper and Kareem Riggins. There's going to be a program that features who is August Green tomorrow at this time. On Thursday, we're going to be back, and I'll talk with members of Congress Jan Schakowsky and Mike Quigley, and we'll talk about uh, nuclear weapons and U.S. nuclear policy, what's changing and what isn't. Hope you can join us Thursday for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Shazmin Hussein and Viviani Garcia Blanco for production assistance. Thanks also to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.